I bless you, everybody. Wonderful to worship with you. Wish you were here and we were together. Let's not wish about it. Let's keep praying about it. That almighty God, who alone is sovereign, would sooner rather than later enable us to get back together again. Until then, he remains the constant in our life, the rock, our mooring point, the unchangeable one, high and lifted up, seated on the throne, fully in control of all things, not just with might, but with compassion and concern for each of those, especially who are connected to him by faith. Folks, these are troubling days, but we're in good hands, don't you agree? Well, we have the privilege now to talk about God's word, think about it, through it. He spoke the very world, creation, order into existence, through it. He could speak wonderful change into our life. So we're going to continue looking into God's word tonight, specifically this challenging book, the book of Judges, which gives us a painful picture of rebellion, bad, restoration, good. Israel's nature is human nature. And so we see human sin, even under the best of circumstances, and we see divine grace in order to answer the need in order to answer the reality of human sin. So we're in Judges chapter 17 tonight. We've been looking chapter by chapter into the various personalities in this book. And tonight, a new one. We finished considering Samson last week. Tonight, someone named Micah. We read about him here in the first verse. Now, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was, here he is, Micah. Uh, there are many people named Micah. Don't confuse this one with Micah, who is the prophet and who wrote scripture for us, namely the book of Micah. This one is entirely disconnected from that particular Micah. This one's name means who is like God. That's what Micah means. Here's the answer. Nobody is like God. And certainly, as you will see, this Micah is not like God at all. Very ironic that this would be his name because, as you'll see, I think rather tragically, he doesn't resemble the Lord he knew of at all. Now, the text tells us he lived in this bit of geography, the hill country, no, no, not of Texas, of Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel. They were allotted a beautiful territory. Here's what it looks like. Some of you have been there. This is real stuff. It's not mythological. You can see why it's called the hill country, in this case of Ephraim. And then the next verse tells us this. He, Micah, said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver. Uh, you perhaps remember this quantity of money See how it says pieces of silver? Why does it say pieces? Well, that's before there was coinage. And so money was not yet in the form of coins. It was a weighted kind of thing. They would weigh the pieces. So here we're reading again about 1,100 pieces of silver. I say again, because if you have a good memory, you will remember that last week, that particular quantity of money was in view. Five Philistine lords made a deal with this uh, 
questionable person, Delilah, they said, find the source of Samson's strength, reveal it to us. We will reward you, each of us, with 1,100 pieces of silver apiece. Uh, a rather small fortune is what they offered. Well, these 1,100 pieces of silver have absolutely no connection to the 1,100 pieces of silver we read in the prior chapter. Okay, so he, Micah, says to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you. You know what happened, folks? Someone stole Micah's mother's money, her fortune. A thief took it. And then he says, about which you uttered a curse. The mother thought she had the power to pronounce a curse upon whoever is the thief, whoever is the culprit who took her money. She said, I don't know who you are, but I'll get back at you. I'll put a curse on your name. Micah heard this curse. See, it says, in my hearing. And so he says, behold, here's the rather shocking message he has for his mama. Behold, the silver is with me. Good night. Her own son is the guilty party. He stole from his own mother. Is he repentant now? Well, as you will soon see, I don't think so. I think he believed that his mom indeed had the capacity to put a curse upon him, he being the thief, and he wanted in some way for the curse to be removed. So he approaches his mama. He confesses, I'm the one who has the silver. I took it. And his mother said, hmm, blessed be my son. And then she has the gall to invoke the Lord's name by the Lord. Folks, uh, if you want to ruin your kids, then you ought to raise them the way this lady raised her son. He was a mama's boy indeed, wasn't he? I think it's fair to say he could do no wrong in the eyes of his mother. I think it's fair to say she didn't really love him because she spared the rod, if you will. You know, kids raised up without parental restraint get the message you don't care about how they live. And though it may look like they got it all together. Wow, I can come and go as I please. My parents give me no restraints, no guidelines, no discipline. Even though look, that looks like an ideal position, uh, all studies indicate later on in life, kids raised in that unbounded, undisciplined way uh, suffer from this sense of not being of value. It's as if the parents have said, I don't really care how you live. So if you want to mess up your kids, parent them the way Micah's mom apparently parented him. We have no hint of rebuke, discipline, or consequence. In fact, she removes this imagined curse and puts a blessing upon the son in spite of his misbehavior, and has, as I mentioned, the nerve to invoke the name of God. That's a violation of the commandment, by the way, that says you must not use the name uh, of the Lord your God in vain. It means to lift it up for no good reason. You can't make a God a partner in your sin or poor decision-making, and I think that's what this lady is doing here. So the story goes on in verse 3. He, Micah, then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand 
to the Lord. Oh, that looks good. She's going to make an offering to God, a sign of devotion to him. Not really. Look, I'm going to do this for my son to make, this is surprising, a graven image, that's not enough, and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So this is a little nuts, folks. This is a, a grand illustration of religious behavior entirely separated from um, a personal life of devotion to Almighty God. And so she decides, now that I have the money back, I'm going to hire somebody to fashion. Some people say two idols. You see, it looks like two idols. Uh, one is a graven image and the other a molten image. Others say, no, it's really only one idol. A graven image is something you carve out of wood or stone. Molten image is made from, uh, oh, heating up metal and putting it into a form. And so some people are saying it's only one idol she had in mind. The metal part is simply the base of the graven part, which is actually the idol itself. I don't know. All I know is religion can, religious behavior could really uh, fool you into thinking you're right with God when in fact he desires, as the scripture says, loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So here's what happens now. Verse 4, when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took, how much did she take? 200 pieces of silver. What'd she do with the rest? <laughs> she took 200 pieces of silver and she gave them to a silversmith and he made them into a graven image and a molten image and they were in the house of Micah. They thought this is how you approach God. We will create a house. That's what it says. We will create a house for our false gods in, in our house. <laughs> a house to house your false gods. Don't you think it's far better to actually be the house or the temple in which God has seen fit to establish his presence? Isn't it better to be a housing for the spirit of God having accepted Jesus the son? Well, again, religious behavior is totally contrary to the establishment of a personal relationship with God. And so this is what they do. She hires the services of a craftsman, a silversmith, with 200 pieces of silver to get this done. And so it says now in verse 5, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod. He had a shrine. This is in his house. And an ephod. Remember, that is something uh, that was uh, designated to be fashioned and used by the high priest a descendant of Aaron, and here you have this character, Micah, who's not from the tribe of Levi at all, and he's fashioning these things, establishing a shrine in his home, making an ephod. He would wear it, I suppose, from time to time in order to make contact, he thought, with Almighty God. He could do it his way instead of God's, and he has his household idols. Look at all this stuff. He's got a shrine, he's got an ephod, he's got household idols. That's not enough. He consecrated one of his own sons so that he might become his priest. 
Well, man, that really completes the whole deal. He created Micahism, his own religion. I do not need to submit to the God who was there. I can just take care of stuff in my own house. I can commune with the God of my own making in my own house. And I'll even designate one of my sons, not qualified, not authorized, not a descendant of Aaron, not a Levitical priest. I'll call him a priest and I'll do this all in my own home. What a shame, you see, because God established his presence in meeting place very nearby in a place called Shiloh. Some of you have actually been there. Again, it's a real place. That was the place where God established his meeting place in his tabernacle before the temple was constructed. For 300 plus years, people were called upon by God to commune with him as an assembly in Shiloh. Micah couldn't say, oh, the traffic is so terrible. Shiloh was so far away. Good night, folks. It was within walking distance. And so Micah thought he's offering valid worship to almighty God and he's not do you know God wants us to worship him? Yeah, but in spirit and in truth. He has a designated way by which he wants us to worship. and We can't come up with our own plan, but that's exactly what Micah, the religious dude, is doing. And so he makes again a house inside his own house to house his false gods. And he's got a fairly complete collection of them. So verse 6 Here's what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That is the sorrowful theme of the entire book of Judges. In fact, you'll see the whole book summed up in the very last verse, which is exactly like this one. How could Micah do what he did? What do you mean? In those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. This sounds a little bit like an ancient history lesson, doesn't it? No. Welcome to modern day America. It's called moral relativism. Folks, this characterizes, sadly, the day in which we live right here. Everyone is doing what was right in his own eyes. Look, look, look. We are not having economic or political uh, problems. We're having a big spiritual problem. When people are intent on dethroning the king, the king of kings, when people are intent of living as if there is no king, but each could be the master of his or her own destiny, then there's the death of absolutes. There are no absolute measures of truth. Truth is a function of what you think to be true. It's called moral relativism. You can no longer say to someone, hey, that's not right. That's wrong. Then the person will say, who are you to say that? What's right for you may not be right for me. Can you see? Everyone is doing what's right in his or her own eyes. But what does the scripture say? Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Can I suggest something to you, my fellow Christians, instead of getting mad and angry and frustrated and cynical, why don't you pray? I'm saying this to myself too. Why don't you pray for those who are lost without the King of Kings? Why don't you pray that this day of disarray, lack of restraint and moral relativism 
will rear its ugly head to such an extent that people will see how empty life is without the giver of life seated on the throne of our individual lives? Why don't you pray that Almighty God, bent on redemption, desiring for none to perish but for all to be saved, why don't you become a prayer warrior in battle and say, oh God, use this day to incline, to cause people's hearts to be inclined towards you like never before. Now verse 7 says this. Now there was a young man from Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, house of bread. Look at it says in Judah. Well, why does it say that? Because there's two Bethlehems in the Bible. The other one is in the tribal allotment of Zebulon. To distinguish this Bethlehem from that one, we're given this descriptive term. There's a young man from Bethlehem, not in Zebulon, but in Judah. Hey, by the way, that's the Bethlehem in which the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, was born. As foretold by another man named Micah, the prophet Micah in chapter 5, verse 2, as for you... Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. That's the Lord Jesus. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So there's a young man from that very place. He's of the family of Judah. What did he do as a vocation? He was a Levite. And he was staying there. He's staying in Bethlehem. He's a Levite. He's called upon to function with authorization as a priest. That's exactly what he was called to do. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 8. Then the man departed from the city, Bethlehem. He left Bethlehem. And he went to stay wherever he might find a place. So what's up with that? The Levites were not given a land inheritance in the promised land. They were to depend on almighty God and the good graces of people. People were to support these Levites. He decided, I suppose, to look for a better deal than he had in Bethlehem, improve his lot in life, perhaps financially. So he traveled. He left Bethlehem so as to find a place. As he made his journey... He came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Somehow he found his way to the home of this questionable character, Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. And so we get this response in verse 10. Micah said to him, dwell with me. Be a father, not a literal father. It means a spiritual guide. Be a spiritual guide to me. Not only that, be a priest to me. Be a priest to me, not a priest in general. I want you to be my personal holy man. I want you to be a priest to me. And in return, I will give you 10 pieces of silver. What a cheapskate. Good night. Uh, with the money he stole, the 1,100 pieces of silver, this guy could have lived for 110 years. He's getting the guy cheap. I'm going to give you 10 pieces of silver. Not only that, I'm going to give you a suit of clothes. I'll give you a place to stay. I'll take care of your maintenance. 
So what did the Levite do? The Levite said, how dare you think you can buy my favors? I'm a holy person set apart to the service of Almighty God. You can't hire me. Not at all. I'm dependent upon Almighty God, and I will not cheapen my calling by reducing it to a, to a, to, 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 to a salary package. No, he doesn't do that. The Levite went in. The Levite said, pretty good deal. Food, clothing, and shelter. And that's exactly what he sadly decides to do. So verse 11 says he agreed to live with Micah. And he became to him like one of his sons. And Micah consecrated him. Can I tell you something? He has no business doing that. He has no authority to consecrate this Levite as his own priest, but that's what he does. And the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And so that's what's happening. Instead of denouncing Micah, once again, the Levite goes along with the deal. It's a very bad deal, uh, folks, when a minister is in it for the dental plan, when a minister is in it for the bennies. It's very legitimate to provide for the needs of a minister. But a minister bent on profiting financially from his call to ministry cheapens it, corrupts it, and I think incurs the judgment of God. So here's what happens in verse 13. Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. How does he know that the Lord will prosper me? Once again, just as his mother invoked the Lord's name in vain, like mother, like son. Son is doing the same thing. Could I tell you something? God cannot, will not bless that which is contrary to his stated will. God declared who will and will not be his priests. This guy is violating all that and yet imagining that God will prosper him nonetheless. Folks, this is called religious behavior, superstitious religious behavior. I got my own shrine. I got my own ephod. I got my own priest. Surely God will prosper me. It's what people do today, even with something as sacred as, let's say, baptism. Sadly, some think, look, I've lived in, lived in immoral life. I'm a retrobate, reprobate. I've been disobedient and rebellious, and I don't plan on changing. But I'll go and get baptized, and somehow I'll, ha I'll be able mysteriously and magically to be changed and have God's favor. Now, that is not to denigrate the sacred nature of baptism. It's just to say you can't use baptism for that kind of religious superstitious behavior. If baptism isn't an external sign of internal devotion to Christ, then all you did is got wet. So that's religion. Do you mind if I tell you I, I, I hate religion and I think God does too? I speak to you from someone who comes from a uh, a very traditional, deeply rooted religious background. The tricky thing is there's so many beautiful, uh, endearing, and attractive aspects of it, but it kept me from my own Savior for years and years of my life. I had no access to him. I just was a practitioner of religion. I was kind of like Micah. Have are you like that? Have you been like that? I, I would encourage you to exchange the trappings of religion. 
in order to be enmeshed in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's far better. So Michael was religious, but it was the kind of religion that could send a person straight to hell. It's religion without a saving relationship with the Savior. You can be very religious, do you know this, and yet blatantly outside of the will of God. Religion of any kind teaches you what you must do, but the Bible teaches you what you cannot do. Here's what you and I cannot do. We cannot work for and merit our own salvation. The Bible teaches us that salvation is a gift to be received in spite of what we do or do not do. Now, as we close, I want to call your attention to this very stimulating thought by Paul Washer. Look, a lot of people think that Christianity is you doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. No, that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed and they have new affections. Don't make this complicated. Do you see evidence of new affections in your life for Jesus? That's a sign that you are not a religious person, you're a saved person. Especially this day that is affecting all of us how are you processing it? Do you feel alone or are you running to Jesus? Are you finding him to be accessible? Are you running to him, pouring out your heart, sharing honestly whatever emotions you may be experiencing and finding rest for your soul? Are you able to run into the throne room of grace to find grace and mercy to help in time of need? Or do you feel distant? Do you only know of God in as transcendent deity, or do you know him as Emmanuel, God with us? Could I challenge you to take inventory right now? The circumstances, here's one benefit of them, are revealing what we're made of. Have we been made by faith into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, or are we just going through the religious motions much like Micah? I don't think he's a person to admire or emulate. Oh, no. Better to fall on your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and tell him, thank you so much for doing for me what I could not do under the best of religious circumstances. I cannot climb the ladder of merit and good deeds in order to access you. I'm so glad that you extended yourself downward to me condescending, becoming enfleshed so as to suffer and die in my place. Please take Jesus as your personal Savior. Be freed from the throes of impotent religion. Take a personal Savior named Jesus to forgive you for your personal sins and thus enjoy now and on to eternity a vibrant personal relationship with the God who doesn't need to be housed in the form of idols. No, with the God who's willing to take up his abode in you personally. Lord Jesus, that's our prayer for everyone listening in. No, no, way beyond 
for this desperate world caught in darkness, running the experiment of life without you, the king, finding it to be empty, finding it to lead to hopelessness and despair. We pray the gospel, which is available, would take root in the lives of many, many more people around the world today than in any day. Thank you for saving those of us who are saved. This not by merit or religion or tradition. This purely by your grace. God of all grace, graciously, mercifully, use us to spread the good news of redemption in Christ Jesus to a very needy world. In this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.